I hope people can't hear the sound of the, the coffee machine grumbling in the background. It's really loud and I'm not that far away from it. Um, Anyways. It is just indicative of when and where we are. Think of it as ambiance. I can't wait to discuss these user manuals that I put together because it seems that for a lot of you guys, needing coffee in the morning is critical. So just to give you a little heads up, I, I had this exercise that I did with Sharice and the rest of the team where I had them submit a personal user manual on basically how to best work with each individual. And I'm sitting across from Eugene right now, holding a cup of coffee in my hand. And that was something I included in my user manual. That You're it's not the best, only one. It's best if you, it's not like you can't, I'm not going to bite your head off, but it would be best if you waited. I mean, I have coffee, coffee in the morning too. Yeah, you're just more timely than the rest of us because you have coffee before you even come in. I'm not going to share my my coffee consumption habits at home. I already, I know how much coffee you drink. I don't drink that much anymore. Okay, I know once upon a time how much coffee you drink. Like a liter of French press at a time. Oh my gosh. That was not, that was not healthy. Those well, were it was mad not that days. Healthy, Those just... were mad days. You, okay, Eugene literally has this one, or he used to have this one liter French press and he would make the full thing of coffee and then not bother to pour it into any cups and just drink straight from the French press. I was so selfish too. I didn't offer anyone any coffee, but to that point, that was a bigger office and it wasn't enough to go around, to be honest. This wasn't enough. It's okay. Nobody wants to share the French press that you put your lips on. And it had absolutely no consideration of how to make the best cup of coffee. It was literally the, you know, let's just throw these, let's just dump these things in and see what comes of it. It gets the job done. Yeah. So a few days ago, a few nights ago, well, yeah, I guess a few nights ago, we did our most recent making session. Yeah. With Dan Sanderson and Josephine Cruz. Um, Dan is editor-in-chief at Mundial and Josephine is a Toronto-based DJ and writer and they both um, were very kind to come on to our session Provide and talk some about- insights. Yep. Yeah, into how they turned a side gig into a full-time gig, which I think that has been the ongoing battle for a lot of people. It's like, oh, you know what? I have these things I'm really passionate about. How can I sustain myself? How can I grow? And I think that's always a challenge. Like, obviously we go through that challenge every day. It's, we recognize how- difficult it can be you know what 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 are things that you take absolute control of what are things that you need to sort of roll with the punches but I think overall went really well like not even from um how do I put this as we were discussing it kind of debriefing after I think we both agreed that it was the smoothest one like we have um we have someone in our team Mike who always sort of gives us feedback on these things and we applied a lot of his feedback they included you know, maybe limiting the number of people so that the internet connection was better or ensuring they had a consistent background. So I think those things all went a long ways. Yeah, just small details that maybe attendees don't notice, but we were really thinking about how can this be a better audio visual experience and not just great content because we weren't we weren't worried really. Like we knew Dan and Josephine were going to be great guests and that's something that we'd already um, considered by inviting them. And then there were all these other, like you said, you know, internet logistics factors. Yeah. I think what's interesting because we, after it was all said and done, I was asking for feedback. Like, oh, I think you could have asked harder questions. And I was thinking about that because at the time there wasn't really anything that came to mind that I felt that I, 
that was immediately sort of like burning in the back of my mind. You know, it, it, it is interesting because I was trying to think about it. Is it because Dan and Josephine were so sharp, they could just, you know, answer on the spot? Because, I mean, like I said, there was, you, you guys probably couldn't see it if you were, if you were attending the, the session, but when they weren't speaking, each of the speakers were on mute just to like reduce background sound and Sanderson had the worst. I hope he listens to this because his <laughs> his fellow office he was in a he was in like a co working space, but his the people in there were so loud and they were dropping f bombs and it was. I mean, I'm not gonna tell him to be quiet, but it was just funny because I actually he, think he did because he muted himself and you could see him like talking off screen. So, yeah. Oh, uh, anyway. But yeah, no, I think they were both very, very articulate and quick to the punch. Yeah. Which really maybe glad. honestly, I think that contributed to you thinking that you know, the questions weren't hard enough. Or maybe they just had a very firm perspective. A lot of introspection on their parts. I was thinking about it. And maybe because they are these types of personalities where they were able to make their side gig their full-time thing, they're already thinking a lot about these questions for themselves. So it would have been really hard to surprise them with anything that they hadn't actually already thought about and pushed themselves to consider. Let's get the ball rolling today. Yep, let's do it. So let's start with my topic. How a free canvas tote bag became a bigger status symbol than a $10,000 Hermes bag. So a recent article came out that compared the cultural value of an Hermes Birkin, which if you're unfamiliar with women's handbags, it's a very popular iconic bag that, you know, can go anywhere from, you know, $10,000 US upwards to you know, six figures, depending on resale value, the materials used. It's pretty popular in Asia. And it's also really well known for being a bag that has a wait list. So even if you are rich, it's not necessarily guaranteed that you can get your hands on one. If you're going to buy a new one. Yeah, brand yeah. new one. Yeah. yeah. So the article discusses that while a Birkin costs upwards of 10 grand, the New Yorker tote bag itself has a lot of value that in some eyes can be seen as exceeding the value of a Birkin, sort of the cultural clout of it. Right, not a monetary value. Yes. So since implementing this, this sort of giveaway of providing a tote with magazine subscriptions, the New Yorker tote bag has been distributed over 500,000 times. So there's over 500,000 of these tote bags in circulation right now. So the piece spoke with author Elizabeth Currid Hockett, who wrote The Sum of Small Things, A Theory of the Aspirational Class. And she was quoted as saying, the tote bag has a lot of value despite being significantly cheaper. Her exact words were, reading the New Yorker implies possession of rarefied knowledge, cultural awareness, and refinement of taste that goes beyond simply reading about world happenings. The tote bag allows one to, even if not intentionally, broadcast one's possession of such cultural capital. So these bags are so popular that their, their inability to keep up with demand has actually resulted in sort of these complaints. People have been waiting longer than expected for their tote bag. And actually the tote bag in and itself is not that hard to get. If you sign up for a 12 week trial, it's only six bucks. You could essentially cancel and you have, you paid six bucks for a tote bag. If you were to stay and on a 12 week trial and a 12 week trial. And if you stay on for and end up renewing for a year, it, the price shoots up to $120, $119.99. Even then the New Yorker is, I think a, sort of like a, 
cultural institution in the media world, yep. you would say, right? I agree. There's over 1.2 million subscribers, which sounds like a lot, but in the grand, grand scheme of things, that's not a ton in terms of circulation. No. Um, but they did add over 100,000 new subscribers after Trump's election win, which suggests people are probably interested in supporting quality reporting and journalism in the era of quote-unquote fake news. If you look further into this this sort of trend, I think the New Yorker is a part of a broader sort of narrative. And it's things like these items are part of this aspirational class that include, but aren't limited to things such as buying objects that make you feel like a better human being. You know, that could be things that are ethically made. They're organic. Um, Inconspicuous consumption goes up. So that means buying things that are less evident. Like it's not buying a BMW, but spending things on- um, Vacation? I think vacation could be part of it unless you're obviously out there. Putting oh, on social or um, media. classes. Yeah. Classes would be a great yeah. example. Um, talking about ideas and not stuff. That's not really consumption based, but just what you talk about and the luxury of free time, how you spend your free time. Before I jump to the next point, okay. do you think you're part of the aspirational class? She just rolled her eyes at me. No, no, no. I was rolling my eyes at myself because you already know this, Eugene, but yeah. I- have one of these New Yorker tote Oh yeah, bags. that's right. You do have one. <laughs> um, so I have to come clean here and admit that, right? Um, but why did you pick up a bag? Or like, no. So actually I fall exactly into this 100,000 new subscribers after the Trump election win. And I, I mean, I don't think at the time I was imagining myself falling into this category but it was definitely a reaction to wanting to read more solid news on what happened. So I've subscribed exactly to this 12-week trial to genuinely read the New Yorker magazine. Did you know a tote bag was coming your way? I did know the tote bag was coming. Okay. I did know so that, that it was coming So that could have subconsciously influenced I you. I do think it subconsciously influenced me, but more of it was the fact that $6 for 12 weeks is pretty good. But in it, your, to your defense, I have not seen you use a tote bag. I have not. Well, yeah. Partially is just practical because I carry a computer around. Um, so I don't, I don't have a practical need for the tote bag and I wouldn't like just take it out yeah. to show off that I'm reading the New Yorker. Yeah. So there's one last point. So in closing, Curd Hawkett had to say this. The truth is, if you're not a New Yorker reader, either because you don't like it or you're not particularly aware of it as a publication, this bag will not convey cultural capital or any real value above being a cloth tote, which is very different than if someone owns an aesthetically beautiful bag that possesses valuable attributes without requiring a cultural context. The value of the New Yorker bag is what it signifies, not what it actually looks like. Which I think is a pretty, pretty on-point statement. Because if you don't know what the New Yorker is, I mean, aesthetically, I think there is something iconic about the New Yorker's branding, but it might also be subconsciously associated with what it represents. Like it's tough for me. Yeah. You know, and you too. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me to give a design evaluation of the tote bag without thinking of it as being related to the New Yorker. Yeah. So I think the reason why I, I chose this topic was several things actually. Um, first and foremost, I remember, and this is not me calling you out so much as like it, it, was sort of top of the mind. I know that you you bought like a t-shirt from the boiler room. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That was a few weeks ago, months mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. So if you're not familiar with the boiler room, maybe you can give a little bit of explanation from your perspective. Boiler room is a music 
label movement club group. They do a lot of shows around the world, bringing um, popular DJs like producers that are well-known, but then a lot of unknown music producers, musicians, DJs. They are not exactly, I don't know what to call them because they do a wide range of things, but they are most known for their live shows. Correct. Have you ever been to a live show? I have not been to a live show. So this, that point was not actually what I was hinging on. But when I was in Korea, I was at a cake shop in Contra and Gabe, uh, the creative director there, he brought up a a point where, you know, they could sell t-shirts that represent cake shop and Contra, but they were so opposed because first off, it wasn't like a meaningful rev. Well, it's not that it wasn't a meaningful revenue stream, but it was a revenue stream that they weren't interested in pursuing because all of a sudden people would start buying a piece of that cultural capital without ever going to Contra, without ever going to Cake Shop. And to him, in the eyes of um, what he does and nightlife in general, there's only one way to experience nightlife and that's physically being present. And he didn't want the ability for people to never have gone there, but own a piece of it. So it kind of, it kind of tipped into this whole conversation of people that are looking into products for the sense of cultural currency. Because inherently, like, do you think that if you were wearing a boiler room shirt and someone saw it and they identified that that would be an immediate talking point? Uh, I just want to clarify what I said earlier. Yeah. I have boiler rooms description of themselves and they t- call themselves a global online music broadcasting platform. So it's different because they don't, they do have live sessions, but they're Mission is not for people to come see the live thing so much as to share this experience online. Yes. So they do a lot of live streaming. So that is a difference between them and Cake Shop. Correct. But I, I am I will address like the cultural capital question that you're asking. I don't use the New Yorker tote bag, which I have in my closet, but I do use a tote bag that's McSweeney's. Have you heard of McSweeney's? No. McSweeney's is a indie publisher that does um, monthly journals that I love. And using that tote bag plus wearing the boiler room tee, I am aware that if anyone is familiar with these, what am I supposed to call them? Entities. (laughs) Use entities. That's my catch-all for things that... I have no way of describing them. It's a brand Oh, I wanted to say brand, but that's... I can't like... You know, Susie's a brand. I wouldn't call that an entity. No, it's an still entity. a brand. Anyway, okay. So when I use that tote, the McSweeney's tote or wear the boiler room tee, I am really aware that if someone is familiar with these entities, they're going to ask me about it and what you said about it being a talking point. So I would only use them, wear them when I feel comfortable about talking about them. Because I, not that I think people are going to attack me for that decision, but I would only want to use them out of genuine support. Another point that I thought was interesting was these are physical objects. Yeah. You know, they're, they're material objects. And for a while there, it seemed as though material objects were often less associated with cultural currency. They're more associated with monetary value. Like the very, consi- the very conspicuous consumption side of things. And I, I think we're kind of weaning off that a little bit, right? I think it's still, it's always going to exist. Don't get me wrong. But we're at a point in time now where, you know, to that previous point, 
people now talk about ideas and not stuff. And this is a physical manifestation of the ideas. So I've always sort of had this like underlying beef, I guess you could say. And, and it lies with the fact that, you know, fashion got to a point where it was so easy to just, not, participation was through consumption. Like you weren't actually doing things. You weren't, you weren't actually doing things. You weren't actually going out and kind of challenging, discussing, you know, that part of culture in itself, I've always found was lacking in fashion. And it is what it is. It's about, you know, every few months, I'm, the industry is telling you your, your wardrobe is not good enough. So you got to replace something, right? So now it's interesting because it's it's not inherently that the I, the the material side is bad, but the representation of it now is different, right? And I think you know back in the day, maybe it's lost a little bit of value because it's so big now. But like the likes of Stussy and Supreme were just like your New Yorker tote bag or your McSweeney's um, tote, and they're things that if you see people with that, you know that it's not necessarily a value thing, but it's about knowing about something deeper and more underlying. But usually when things get too big, that's when it, the meaning changes, right? Because people are trying to buy into that movement into itself. What we're talking about understanding the product that you're buying into. Because if you see someone wearing a Supreme tee, you're not going to ask them, oh, do you know about Supreme? Or even if it was like a really limited edition Supreme XYZ, whatever it is, you would never ask, right? Like no one has to defend that choice. But if you saw someone with a New Yorker tote, you would not challenge them, but you would make an assumption that they read the New Yorker. Yeah, that is true. And, you know, I, when I look at it like that, I, I, I keep thinking about what sort of perception is being generated. Nowadays, if I saw someone with a Supreme tea, like, probably wouldn't want to talk to them, you know, just like not, not saying like in an asshole way. It's just that, you know, in general, there, there's no sort of interest there. Whereas if it was 10 years ago, like, and it was much more underground, a lot more difficult to understand that movement, it would be more compelling, you know, like now it's like Supreme is amidst a whole swath of brands. Whereas the New Yorker still, you know, 500,000 tote bags in, in, in circulation, like, I can with reasonable confidence, I'd say, maybe because there's so much more rigor that is involved in being associated with the New Yorker. Whether they read or not, who knows? There's something different there because you're unified by an idea and not necessarily by a possession. Yeah. Not to say that Supreme wasn't like that in the past. Yeah. It's just that it's so point now, especially since the fashion brand, well, quote unquote fashion brand, we're more fashion inclined that it's gone that direction. I think it's interesting to think about how fashion can lead you to make an assumption about a person's lifestyle and Supreme has gone over to the end. Where I hate, I hate that I had to use Supreme, but it seems like the best example currently. Yeah. I, th- I think it's fine. I don't hate you for using that. I think I'm just, glad you don't hate me. I don't hate on that usage of Supreme as a brand because I do think they have become a brand where you would not make any assumptions about a person's lifestyle, like what they're reading or listening to. And you would just think that they had bought into a trend perhaps like on a negative aspect. Anyway, you would just think that they had bought a product. Like you would not think more about why they bought that product. Yes. Yeah. Whereas if you saw someone with a boiler room tea, you would think a little bit more about why they had bought that product. Yes. 
And is it because they're not fashion brands? That might be it, in my opinion, because both of them are a bit more experiential. Well, you know, one thing that I'm thinking about, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but something that comes up in this conversation is Thrasher. Yeah, Thrasher. Yeah. Like, it's crazy because Thrasher is, I mean, you know about it. You know what I mean? That's how big it is. Like, you're not necessarily massive industry. No, I'm totally not. Um, I would not, I don't feel offended at all. Like I'm not into streetwear. I'm not a skateboarder. I'm not part of, I don't consider myself as part of that culture, even if someone might place me within that, um, industry. And it's interesting to me how their cultural capital got totally borrowed and disseminated and it's become, it means so much less now. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. That's a great point. I think in many ways, Thrasher was probably even worse than, got even worse than Supreme. Way worse. Yeah. Way worse. And would you, you wouldn't call them a fashion brand. No, you're right. That's yeah. a good example. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I, at the beginning, I kind of highlighted several reasons why I thought this was interesting, right? But mm-hmm. I think one of the third ones, and maybe the final point was the New Yorker being a publication, McSweeney's being a publisher, like, what does I think these are all case studies were keeping in the back of our mind and thinking like, well, what do we do? You know, like, and I, I think there's always going to be a very conscious sort of difference of, of how to approach this. Because part of me knows like if you're spending, you know, six bucks for a trial, honestly, the tote bag probably is the cost of the tote bag is marginal. Mm-hmm. Right. But you're just doing it for sort of these branding purposes mm-hmm. and to, to allow someone to have, to be part of the movement. But also part of me, and this is me speaking on my own behalf. I'm not going to speak on Alex or anyone else. Like you guys know me, like I buy stuff that I can wear like literally every day, yep. you know, and what's the likelihood of a tote bag that can handle the daily rigors of, you know, life. Whereas, you know, the other tote bags that, well, you know, I I can maybe take that back because I know there's some free tote bags that, you know, whether my wife's got or whatever, and she's used them like every day, you know, and they haven't fallen apart. And I think that's a big thing for me is like making sure there's a certain level of quality with the product to know that it's not purely promotional, you know, and it has like some sort of longevity, which can be problematic when it becomes a promo items. Thinking about making and possible merchandising product opportunities for us is this vantage point of approaching it as a quality thing that we as a team would want to use and not just a marketing opportunity, like a product that we would feel fills a gap in our life and therefore it would fill a gap in a make and member's life. And the thing that comes to mind for me is actually the Ikea bag, Mm, the actual Ikea bag, not like the Balenciaga version of the Ikea bag, because I have confidence that Ikea produced, produce that bag as a function in their store. Yeah. Like this is serves a purpose for people shopping in our store. And it turned into a thing that people found a use for outside of the store and then conveniently became this huge marketing opportunity for them. So I would want in an ideal version of what happens with us in merchandising, I would want us to approach this as this is a quality thing that we can also use and therefore think would provide some amount of value to our members and that vantage comes first. I I guess I want to end off on this point is what does it mean when you can't 
openly buy, you know, these products. Mm-hmm. What does it mean when the New Yorker tote is not something you can go on their store and buy? It is only available through uh, purchasing a subscription. Yeah. Does it change the value of it? Or do you think people will find a way to equate some sort of monetary value to it? What comes to mind for me is there's this author I follow that, you know, I follow Shea Serrano and he wrote the rap year book, which is a really good book that people should go out and buy. And he's got this book coming out called basketball and other things. And I trust that it's a good book, but he also does this thing where at different, so it's not released yet. It's not published yet, but at different stages of the pre-orders that come before the actual release of the book, he is offering people some kind of freebie that he's produced. Yeah. So it's like a, like a special artist bookmark that he got made or like a bracelet or at any rate, he's got this list of different products that come at like different phases of his um, pre-orders. Yeah. And so that product would then become the meaning that is attached to that product is I was part of this specific phase of pre-orders. It's almost like I was early, early word. And that's why I got like this limited edition XYZ. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of cool. It is cool. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. It is cool. I like the idea of, I mean, it, yes, I'm going to admit like it's also a convenient way to get people to do pre-orders, but yeah. I do like the meaning that comes with it being like, I wasn't, early supporter because yeah. I am a supporter of this person. I'm a supporter of what they're doing. Yeah. I'm probably quite stern on this, but I just like it when things are earned. You know, I don't like that. I don't like the fact that you can just open up your wallet and, and acquire something. So that's something that's always crossed my mind is in the, in, you know, when I heard that, that statement or that, that quote from um, Gabe from cake shop slash Contra, I was like, yeah, that's pretty respectable. You know, I'm sure you could sell a ton of these t-shirts because people want to somehow be associated with it. And I see this in other contexts too. Like you have people that are buying merchandise for let's say a restaurant they've never been to. You know, Yardbird comes to mind. And it's like, I'm not going to dictate who can and cannot wear a shirt, but it's sort of half as meaningful when you haven't been there. You know, and I I think that's something that's really interesting worth considering is that you're trying to be part of a movement that you're not really part of. And that's obviously a very heavy handed way of looking at it to end off. Like your boiler room example is different. If it's meant to be a thing where just because you haven't been there doesn't mean you're not part of the movement. I think it's very contextual. Some experiences inherently lend themselves to the physical nature of it. And if you're not part of it, which for better or worse, then you're not part of it. What I wanted to talk to you about this week is Detroit hiring an official chief storyteller to redefine how the people in Detroit perceive their own city. This isn't actually new news because it happened at the end of March this year. So what do you see as your mission as Detroit's chief storyteller? What kind of stories do you really want to push out there? Almost anything is possible. Um, One of the things that I've 
like to tell people is that um, so Detroit is east side, west side, and southwest. And you grew up on the east side, know everything about the east side, but you may not know about the west side. If you grew up southwest, uh, you know everything about the southwest portion of Detroit, but you may not know about what's going on on the east side or the west side. Um, so I think this is a great way of sort of learning from each other across city boundaries. Mayor Mike Duggan was appointed in 2014 and received press coverage for being the first white mayor in what is a majority black city for the first time since the 1970s. Detroit is 83% African-American. Also to provide a little bit of context as to why this news is interesting to me is the 2017 Detroit mayoral election is coming up November 7th. So you can perceive this as part of if Duggan doesn't strategy. win, yes, you can see it as part of his strategy. On a positive note, you could also see this as part of Duggan's legacy, as something that he implemented for the first time. There are no other city chief storytellers in the States. And I tried to do some research on whether this exists in other places in the world, but I didn't really come up with anything. The title itself is something I believe is, you know, it sounds nice and like innovative, but it's like a marketing person. That was to be very straight up. Okay, wait, let me give you some more background information first, like just to describe the thing that has happened. So Aaron Foley is this African-American journalist who previously worked as the editor of Black Detroit Magazine and the author of How to Live in Detroit Without Being a Jackass. The city has allocated 254000 I imagine, for over a year um, for this initiative, which also includes a team of six staff members. So it's not just Aaron. It's kind of a department of people. And the format that this storytelling is taking place is a website so far and a cable channel, like a TV channel, and also meant to be a print publication. The mission that Aaron has stated in an interview he did with Michigan Radio is that almost anything is possible, like any stories can be told. He wants to see citizens in Detroit caring about the things happening in districts that they don't live in, that they will want to learn um, about what's happening across city and neighborhood boundaries. And the goal from what he is saying, like his statement is to inspire people within Detroit. And the idea is not to attract people to Detroit. It's good you put that because as I was thinking of, about what you're saying, what I said earlier about it being a marketing position is actually wrong. I don't think that's correct because I was thinking about the purpose because you know, the purpose is more like this is like the editor-in-chief of Detroit. It's different than being the person that's marketing the content for, in, in, in hopes of acquiring new business or like acquiring new eyeballs. Like it's different. Yeah. Aaron specifically says, so Aaron Foley has said that he does not see himself as a PR person. That is not his intent. Yes, he is seeking to tell stories around the city and some of them will be definitely like positive things, like highlighting positive things happening around the city of Detroit. But it's also, so I read some of the stories on the neighborhood, the website that they have up and it's taken from a pretty realistic slant. Like the stories he's telling, whether it's about um, this roller rink that was started by a black family in a district that doesn't have a lot of black owned businesses or Hmong community living in the suburbs and trying to move back downtown. It's not 
fairy tale like. It's not like look at all these good things that are happening. It's the reality of it. Yeah, it that that's how it reads to me. Like there are real struggles and these people are doing their best. Like that's kind of the vibe that I get from those stories. Yeah. To ask you is I don't know how to ask this question. Um I picked this news item not because I have some attachment to Detroit, but because I'm interested in the idea of allowing minority groups to tell their own stories. I've been seeing kind of criticism of stories about POC, like people of color in media and women in media written by white men. There's no other way for me to say this, but just like criticism of these stories, not because there's not coverage, but wanting those stories to be told by the people they're about. And I don't know if that's always the way to approach this. And I think this is interesting because you actually ask me at Macon when we talk about stories, like, is it okay for me to tell this story or does it sound better coming from you? Like, are, or whichever team member, like, is there someone more appropriate for telling the story? When I look at it as such, like when you talk, when you tackle a topic, there's an underlying expectation on the very surface level. So like, I think there's an expectation or a sense of misunderstanding that white male journalists get grouped into. It's like they've seen shitty work done in the past, uh, stuff that lacks sensitivity or massive oversights. It is unfair to group them all into that same same sort of uh, general understanding that, oh, you know what? Because you're of this demographic, you're immediately going to tell a bad story. Because I think there's a lot of soft qualities that come with being a great journalist, right? Like empathy, just connection, et cetera, et cetera. What I think is interesting, and it's it's a point of of debate, it's the more you know something about something, it's not always to the betterment of the story because foundational facts get left out because you assume that because I know it and it's so quote unquote generic that it's not worth putting in there. But depending on who you're telling this story to, like they might need those foundational facts to bring them a along to a more complex place in the story. And that's something that if you're deeply ingrained within a community, sometimes that stuff gets lost. What I think about is whether there are boundaries on who can tell specific stories. Is it okay for me as a POC woman to tell a white male story? Like, is there some reason that I shouldn't be telling that story because it's not authentic or I'm not empathetic enough? Or I don't, I don't, I don't think so. identify with their emotions. But then when I flip it around, I do feel like it's problematic. Like yeah. having a white journalist tell a POC, I don't know, woman but in media story. is that because story. you don't have confidence in their abilities? Because that's what it sounds like to me is, I mean, at the end of the day, there are certain environments and spaces that you need. They're, they're gatekeepers, right? Like if you're going to enter a community and tell someone's story, and you're not from that community, you need a cosign, right? And, and obviously different communities have different barriers to entry, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that if, if over the course of, you know, this current world we're living in, if we didn't have a lack of confidence in certain types of people telling other people's stories, this would be a non-issue. Because like, why do you think that you're more capable of telling, you know, a white male story than the reverse? And is it based on historical track records? 
Part of me thinks that it's because we are working to correct an imbalance in the people who tell stories and the people that stories are usually about. Actually, that is one of the reasons why Detroit hired, a, like found Aaron Foley as a chief storyteller because they want him specifically to tell stories that are not covered in general, like even local media, like the stories that they usually talk about are focused on one specific area in Detroit or about one type of news. And they hired someone to tell other kinds of stories. So that's why it was necessary. And I guess me thinking about having more female POC authored stories is about correcting that imbalance where, but, but the imbalance is different from the story itself, right? They, I think you're 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 looking at two different problems here. One is the actual story being told. Is it is it able to be told in the best light because of this person's demographic or their background versus the systemic issues? Like I think those are two different things. And with the way I would approach this is that whoever tells stories, like I think there needs to be a certain understanding of the balance and the relationship there. That's one thing. But the systemic stuff, well, that's more like opportunity. Right. I think that having someone like this, having someone like Aaron at the helm is definitely beneficial. 100%. I think what's interesting is that he's someone that, that comes to the table with a certain level of credibility and respect in the community. So even though he's, you know, African-American, I think he's able to like dip in and out of these different worlds. No doubt about that. Right. Well, one more factor that I want to throw in here is I do think Aaron is very well set up in his background as a previous author and editor to tell these stories. And one way that he is telling stories that maybe he's not as empathetic with is the ones that are outside of his socioeconomic class. That's another kind of boundary I think about when telling stories, whether we are the right people to tell stories of those who belong to economic classes other than ours. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I, I don't like to look too much into that. And I don't think that ever should become a deterrent from approaching a story. You know, to go back to what you said, maybe you can give some background on that question I asked you of, remember I was like, oh, is this a story someone like myself could do as it pertains to that that story you're working on? Because I think that is, I think that is an interesting topic. The story that I haven't even actually started But you're thinking about Okay. You yeah. want me to describe the story? I think so. And I think it was like, cause I asked like, I, I even personally felt, even though I, everything I've said up to this point suggests that you shouldn't be limited by your, your racial background, your socioeconomical background. It shouldn't limit you from doing a story. But my visceral reaction was, I cannot do that story. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to pick apart. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, no, I I obviously understand that we've been really, we've been speaking quite generally and we can't put every type of story and every type of journalist into buckets, right? Okay, so this is the story that I am thinking about or this is the topic I'm interested in. Yes. Regardless of whether I write the story or not, I still am interested in this topic. All right, don't give yourself an out like that. Okay, all right. I have been paying attention to the way different young women portray themselves on social media and I, I'm when I say I notice this, I don't mean I notice this and I'm hating on it. I just have noticed that there are different kind of approaches to how young women, not even for branding purposes, consistently 
have this image, this persona that they are representing themselves as. And I want to find out more about the you, psychology behind that. Can you talk about like the representation? I think you, I know exactly what you mean because we've talked about it, but I think for people um, that are listening, it'd be, it'd be better to just paint a very clear picture. Okay. Because I just Hold want- you accountable today. I just want, I know you're asking me all the hard questions. I just want to be clear that I am in observation, not because I want to dissuade people from doing this. I just find it to be an interesting phenomenon Um, on social media where young women post a lot of selfies, a lot of pictures of themselves in flattering lights. And I wonder about it, not, not because I like, oh God, this is so hard. Even as, even as the target demographic, it's like hard for me to approach this topic. So I can't imagine you doing it. Um, I wonder about what they think when they post those pictures and it could definitely be like just a, like because- Like a quote unquote sexy selfie, something yes. along those lines. I think that's the one thing that everything you said up to that point was honestly fair. But I think you, the, the thing that, that- You think that I'm avoiding being direct on this. Yeah, I think you are. I think you just need to be straight up and like it is the topic at hand. And if this is your observation, right? Yeah, this is my yeah. observation. I mean, these, okay, all right, I can do this. These women look really good and they're allowed to do that. Like they're allowed to portray themselves online, but I want to know why they're doing it. Is it just because they, um, like it makes them feel good personally, like to look at my own photos and see that? Is it for branding purposes? Are they hoping to turn this into a financial opportunity to gain money through their social media? Is it for some more complicated reason? Like they are doing it for artistic purposes, like trying to fight against- um, social media feeds that are all food. Like, I, just, I don't know why. Yeah. I've so just noticed the, that- The takeaway is that what, am, as someone like myself, Eugene, able to tell that story? And, know. you know, what, what, what is the reason behind your, your belief that I'm not the best person? One is I don't really think that people would talk to you honestly about it. Oh, that's a good point. That's a really good point. I don't think you're a bad interviewer, but I imagine that it would be easier for me to approach a young woman about how they're portraying themselves on social media than it would be for you. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, that's something I wasn't thinking about. And I don't think that when we had that discussion, you know, a few days ago that that was immediately evident. And the other thing I think makes me a better person to write this is because coming from someone who fits that demographic makes the story read whether this is correct or not, but it will read more fairly than coming from you. I just think that people will have that perception. Yeah. But do you think there are things that you might miss out on? Or because this is just like, you know, this is a, a pretty new topic in the sense that, Hey, you know what? i I've just thought about this recently. So it's still fresh in my mind. So the reality of it is that you and I both will have the same lack of full understanding of the topic that it's I think pretty I, equal. I actually think I am less likely to be critical and whether that results in a better story or not, I don't, I can't say, Yeah. but because I come from the same background, I'm not going to, I just imagine that I'm not going to be as hard yeah. on this subject. But why can't you be hard? Because it would also 
God, this is like getting into self-evaluation category because <laughs> it would re- it would be being critical of myself as well. Yeah. Whether you would, whereas you would be an outsider. Yeah. I actually had another difficult thing to throw at you that yes. I was like debating, which is not related to you blindsided me by bringing up my story <laughs> idea. The thing that I was thinking about bringing up is the movie Detroit. Yes. Um, it's directed by Catherine Bigelow. And it's about the Algiers Motel incident during the 1967 Detroit riots. So it's a fictional recreation of this historical event. In Detroit, a city of war. On the city's west side, a 150 block area is off limits to everybody. U.S. Army paratroopers, National Guardsmen, state and local police are continuing the fight against a handful of snipers. The history of the event, what happened is that three teenage civilians, all of them black, were beaten and killed by the police. And there were nine other people who were also beaten and humiliated by authority figures, essentially. And everyone involved while charged were found not guilty. So that's the event. And this movie came out in early August. The reason this is that some people have suggested this movie is problematic is because the director and producers and writer are all white. And I think this is on the same topic because it's about like who can, who is allowed to tell what story or how do we perceive different people telling certain stories? Yeah. I mean, I think as always the case, there needs to be, there needs to be a diverse set of voices in the room. Because there's always going to be things that different people miss out on, others pick up on. You need to kind of consolidate those and move forward with the movement. And I think that is what's most important to me. So just as much as like, you know, the topic that you want to talk about in terms of how women present themselves on social media, I would like to have a part in that just to see like if there's anything that you might be missing out on. You know, and I think that is like the most important takeaway is like there has to be a strong advisory team even though we traditionally don't really have, like we kind of have, you know, our peers, but it's not set up in this so-called like advisory team sort of dynamic. But having that, I think is really helpful. You know, at the end of the day, like you should be in promotion of just telling amazing stories and to tell those stories in a certain light just requires you to make sure that things aren't missed out on. Like I try to do that a lot, right? I always ask you like, does this come across as being insensitive? Does this need to be clarified? You know, because there's a lot of things that I might take for granted. Yeah. It's interesting what you're saying about having a strong advisory board, because I feel like that goes into questions of authorship because traditional media authorship usually has just one byline written by Eugene can, but what you're advocating for is having pieces actually sort of co-authored or at least co-sponsored. I mean, I don't, I don't, it may be different for me because I've never cared about that so much as like, just do something really great. I could see it being problematic for some people that really want to just be the, the, the lone star of the show. I don't think how anyone could disagree that having more voices that, that keep you on your toes and make sure you're credible is a bad thing. Yeah. And actually that makes me rethink what I said about Detroit. I mean, not, not a 180, but just the fact that we talk about movies as directed by person's name but a lot of things go into making a movie. And even if I know that the director is 
a white person, that doesn't mean it was just from, it's too simplistic to say this movie was presented by a white perspective. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's a very difficult thing because a lot of these feelings are harbored by the fact that it's historical evidence that suggests they won't do a good job. And that's always very difficult, right? You don't, you can't forget the past, but at the same time, it's like, it, it just reinforces certain things. I mean, this, this gets into a lot of racial things that, and just like racial, like gender-based things that I think are far beyond the scope of this in general. But I always think to myself, like, you know, what does it mean? I mean, if you approach every situation based on your exact previous situation, then do you just keep going one direction with no return? I don't know. I really don't <laughs> know. But I, I think that's the one thing that I'm, I'm always conscientious about. Because, you know, the, the thing is, is that there's a lot of certain groups, social groups or like ethnic groups that have come under fire. And like it's certain people within their groups that have given the whole group a bad name. You know what I mean? And like, how do we weigh that out? You put people in buckets because it makes it a little bit easier to, to d- make decisions, right? But the, you also know that by doing that, if things are starting to go down an uncertain path, there's no turning back. You know, you're getting deeper and deeper into it. You're, you're institutionalizing it. it. becomes more and more ingrained. My takeaway from our discussion and this news item about Aaron Foley as the Detroit chief storyteller is to continue to question my own assumptions of authorship and who is the correct, so, so-called so correct storyteller and work to understand why I have those assumptions and how I could reconsider why this person brings a different perspective to a story. That's a good place to cap things off for the day. Should I go high energy for this? <laughs> I don't, I never, I never got any comments on, on last week's outro. Wait, you didn't? No. So I don't think people are feeling the high energy or they didn't make it that far either or. Well, we, you weren't in office and we replayed it for the team and spent like 15 minutes laughing. If you're interested in hearing more about Megan and our membership opportunities, visit us at Megan.com where you can read and listen to more stories on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. I'm Eugene. (laughs) I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.